I'm going a little old school. I'm going to have a lectern, and I have paper. <laughs> you remember those days? All right, like Peter said, we're going to talk about the Bible this morning, but we're in a series called Core Faith, where we're going through the, just the core tenets of the Christian faith every week. And Peter started us off with the Trinity over three weeks, and uh, so I thought we'd just do a quick review. He talked about who is God, and we learned a word from that. Um, next slide. That word of the study of the God was theology. And then we talked about the, who is Jesus Christ the next week, and we learned that the word for that is Christology, the study of Christ. And we talked about the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? And is there anyone here who did not go to seminary? Remember what that word was. <laughs> it, was it was a tough one. It's a pneumatology. Pneumatology. Greek for spirit, pneuma, and ology, study of. You know, spirit and breath kind of have the same connotation in the Greek language. Today, we're talking about the Bible. Um, the Bible is the basis of who we knew, you know, about God. Who is, who is God? What is, he, um, what is the story of God's relationship to men? Who is Jesus? And because of that, it tends to get attacked from critics of the faith. So I thought today we would just kind of talk about three questions. Um, first question is, what does the Bible say about itself? We'll go into that then. Um, the, the second question is, um, how did we get these books of the Bible? There are a lot of writings. Why did we end up on this set? That tends to be a bit controversial. And finally, we'll talk about, do we have accurate copies of the Bible? Because these books, especially the New Testament is what we'll focus on more here were written 2,000 years ago. And a lot of time has gone from then to now, and people complain that or argue that, oh, how do you know this is truly what was written? So we'll, we'll talk briefly about this, because these are seminary courses right? <laughs> in reality. So we'll just flit along the top for these, give you some ideas. Now, uh, two things. First, if at the end there's anything you have interest in, or if there's anything that is still maybe a stumbling block to your faith. It's something that may cause you to doubt. I'll have a couple action steps for, for you to be able to take. And then we'll try to go quickly because I know we want to have lunch. All right, so this leads us to our first question. What does the Bible say about itself? And I'll just open it up. If you want to shout out, what are some of the things the Bible refers to itself as or describes about itself? Truth. Truth. That's a good one. Word of God, I heard. Light. Light. Oh, I like that one too. What was that? God breathe. God breathe. Oh, I like that one too, yeah. What we're going to focus on, and it's an audacious claim, is that the Bible is the Word of God. It originates from God and came to us through people. Um, and it's an amazing claim because the, the Bible was written for, by over 40 authors in over 1,500 years. You know, it says it is consistently the Word of God. This is God's message to us that He wants us to hear and, and, uh, and follow. And there's a, examples of this in the, in the Bible. 3,800 times the Bible has words like God said, the Word of the Lord came to whoever. And a couple examples um, from the prophet Ezekiel. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year in the exile of King Joachim, the Word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. There, the hand of the Lord was on him. So, and, and most of the prophets start this way, saying that this is not their message. 
This is the message God gave to them to give to the nations. And we have an example from the New Testament, the same, same thing, from the book of Galatians. Now, Paul is describing the message that he had given to the church at Galatia before, and he says, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ, just confirming that this, this is a message coming straight from Jesus. And I think uh, Micah said it earlier, this is my favorite description of Scripture. It's in 2 Timothy. All Scripture is God-breathed. And there's the word for God-breathed. It's a word that Paul makes up. It's the only time it appears in Scripture because he takes the word breath, you know, breath and God, and he just kind of mashes them together. Theonoustos, which looks, should look familiar, Theo being God, you know, the study of God was theology. Neustos was a pneumat. It was a cheat, pneumatology, spirit. And this brings images to us of how God has been interacting with man. You think back to Genesis, God breathing into Adam to give him life. Or there's the there's a passage in the New Testament. Jesus is sending out his disciples. He breathes on them. This says he breathes on them and says, "Take the Holy Spirit with you now as you go." So the idea you get is the Spirit is the one who is acting. And Paul is claiming that all these scriptures that were human written were inspired by God, which we'll, we'll pause there for a second because that gets to be kind of controversial because how, did, how do those two things mix? How do us fallible humans able to write or to record something that is the truth from God as God wants it to be heard? I mean, Pastor Peter did a great, um, uh, he covered this in his, his uh, talk on who is the Holy Spirit, but I have a couple additional points. And first, we'll go back to, to 2 Peter. Peter. Peter's telling the, his audience that, for prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets through human spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And there's, there's two things I love about that. First, it's the concept that the Word of God never originates with us. It is something that comes from God. And the second is that the Spirit of God is not hindered by the fact there are humans given it. The Spirit can work through humans to get his message. I have the image of we, when we had toddlers and you're walking, you know, hold their hand, and you're walking somewhere, about halfway they see a squirrel or something, they want to veer off and do something different. You just kind of pick them up and carry them, and you're still going to reach your destination. That's kind of the image I, I get from this. Like the Holy Spirit can guide and make sure we get to the message that he wants, to, he wants to deliver. Now, how does this happen? I think the Scripture gives us a great view of it if we, as we look back in the Old Testament. The Israelites were traveling through the desert, and God wanted to have items built for this tent, tent of meeting that would, would travel with them. So he, he let Moses in on what, what the plan was. He says, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge in all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. When God wanted to build these special items, he chose people he had already gifted in these areas. But then he empowers them through the Holy Spirit to do precisely what he wants to do. It's an amazing picture. We see evidence of this in the New Testament because we have four Gospels. Um, 
God chose four different people with their own circumstances and passions and gifts to tell the same story, but from that, their unique perspective. So you have Luke, who is a doctor and a historian, and his, his gospel is very detailed. In fact, if you wanted to know how long a scroll could be before it becomes unwieldy, you can kind of limit how much they put on one scroll, Luke is your person. Because he wrote two books, and he's a third of the New Testament. So he didn't leave many details out. But you get the, the opposite. You get Mark, who traveled with Peter. So, you know, scholars believe he got his account of the gospel through Peter. He also traveled with uh, Paul. And his account is very action-oriented, almost like you're sitting down with a fisherman, you know, tell him, telling a story. He, he's, it's less the theology, necessarily, of Jesus, but more what did Jesus do? What are the actions? What are the interactions with the people? You know, and John's the opposite. It's a very intimate gospel, yet it's a very cosmic and huge-scale gospel because you know, he starts off his gospel retelling the creation from the point of Jesus, you know. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And finally, my favorite one was, is Matthew. You know, Matthew's a tax collector who was despised by the Jewish people. He was an outcast. And yet now, at this point in his life, he is writing to the Jewish people. That his, his heart is to deliver the message of Jesus to the Jewish people. And so it's, it, he explains how Jesus is the fulfillment. And he quotes the Old Testament, you know, so many times. And he starts off with a genealogy, which is a bold move for if you're writing a book to start off with a genealogy. But it's a very Jewish thing. So we have all these references of the inspiration of God, how God works through, through the writers to get his message into the Bible. Again, we could spend a series on this, but hopefully this at least spurns some thought and some confidence of the words we have. And it leads us to the second question. How does a first century church evaluate writing to know know this is the word of God? You know, after the resurrection of Jesus, there's this incredible interest. Churches were being started, but they have no scripture surrounding who Jesus is. But there's a lot of writings, you know, in the Luke starts out, you know, there's many people who have sat down to write an account of what happened in the life of Jesus. So there's all these accounts, Paul's writing letters, other people are writing letters. So a lot of things are coming across the desk, you know, metaphorically. So how are they going to evaluate whether this is something that's true? It wasn't until the year 393 that a church council wrote a list saying, here's, are the, here's the books that we use for our 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 collection of authoritative scriptures. And it's become controversial. You see movies uh, like the Da Vinci Code that claim, well, this is really a group of, you know, um, church fathers and Constantine trying to, you know, have, they have a political ax to grind. So they, they collected all these books, throughout some they didn't like, and just, they had a certain message they wanted to, wanted to send, so this only these, this collection of books. And every Easter, if you walk in like a grocery store, you'll see magazines, you know, lost book of the Bible found. You know, amazing truths about Jesus revealed from lost scripture. So there's, there's a lot of drama about it. I think what really happened, though, is a lot more believable, a lot less dramatic. Following Pastor Peter's example, we have a word of the day today. The word is canon. Now, a little hint, use only one N in the middle. You add that second N, it means something completely different. And it comes from the Greek word kana. And here's an example of it being used. He took me there, it's from Ezekiel, he took me there and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. 
And Kanat is measuring rod. It, and it has the idea of, it, it was referred to as scripture. The canon is referred to as the collection of books that we are to measure ourselves against. Here's the authoritative words that we're now to use to form our life and compare our life against. This important, this important point builds on what we talked about earlier. God used human writers to document his inspired message to the church. Then the church begins to identify and collect these works and then copy and distribute it. We find copies of manuscripts all over the Middle East. It went in every direction. But what qualities were the early church used to discover that this thing, that this, um, what they're reading is truly inspired? So there's a couple, couple things they looked for. And we get glimpses of this as you read the early church fathers, you know, the other church leaders. They were constantly writing about what they thought about the faith and writing to their you know, other churches. And so you get glimpses of the criteria they're using as, as they debate which one of these writings they to use as scripture. And the first thing is authorship. Was the author connected to Jesus? You want to know what Jesus' message is? You want to find somebody who was connected to him, who heard the message. And if a book, book was written by any of the apostles, kind of the capital A apostles, the people who traveled with, the, with Jesus, or with Paul, who became an apostle because Jesus met him you know, on the road to Damascus, if something was written by, by them, that kind of that upped the likelihood that it'd be considered scripture. Which brings up an interesting question. In the New Testament, there's six books that were not written by apostles. Can anyone name one of them? What are, can you think what these books are? We talked a little bit about them before. Hmm? Jude. Jude is a good one. Yeah, we didn't talk about that one, but yeah, Jude is. Luke, Luke was not an apostle. He was, he was a doctor who traveled with the apostles. The book of Acts, which he wrote. Mark was not an apostle. James and Hebrews. We don't even know who wrote Hebrews. But Luke, like I said before, traveled with, with Paul. He connected with Peter, so that kind of gave him that, that street cred to know that he, he had access to what the real truth was, what the real story was. Mark, the same thing. He traveled with, with uh, Peter. James was the half-brother of Jesus, and he was a recognized leader of the church in Jerusalem. Jude was a half-brother of Jesus, which helps. And I had mentioned Hebrews. They, some early church leaders thought it was Paul, but we know we're pretty sure it isn't. So that one struggled. You can follow the path of that. It, it took a while for them all to realize that this is, this is a inspired scripture. So, and it passed on the second criteria. It's authenticity. You know, does the book have factual errors or does the doctrine in the book agree with all the other scripture we have? Because if God is a God of truth, he's not, you're not going to get two, two pieces that, of, of writing that conflict with each other. So the authorship had to be established, which was easier way back in, in the first century because people were alive when, when the documents were passed around and created. I mean, a great example of this, I love this in the book of Acts. You see a little bit of this in, in action. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Can you imagine fact-checking the Apostle Paul? <laughs> Say, we love what you're saying, but we're going to go make sure what, what you said was true. And that's kind of what, what happens in the, in the first century. The book of James came under scrutiny because you have Paul talking about 
Grace alone in Christ is what saves you. But the James comes and talks about, well, faith without works is dead. And there's some early church leaders like, how do we put these two together? These don't make sense. It took a while for people to understand how they, how they matched for the James to be accepted fully across the entire, entire area. And then the final criteria they used was authenticity. And I, oh, I, I, sorry, I flipped those. Does the book have any... Um, sorry, we're moving on. This is what happens when you go old school. Yeah, was the writing received by the audience it was written towards? You know, if, if, if Paul writes the Galatians, they're like, I don't know who this Paul is. Then it'd be hard to be accepted. But. So those are the criteria. And we see through the writings of the early church leaders that they're already debating this in the, in the first century, that hundred, you know, if you... If Christ lived up to about 30, 31 A.D., and then you have the books of the New Testament written up to maybe 80, 85 A.D., you get the church leaders up to like 100 and beyond writing about this. And they're quickly coming to a list of which ones were inspired. And there's debate about some of the fringes. You know, Hebrews, like I said, and James had more discussions. But by the time we get to that 393 council where the church wrote the list for the first time, they're not writing, okay, we're choosing these. They're just saying, yeah, we're already using these. This, this is the list, just in case you're wondering. In fact, there's a Christian historian that I really like, F.F. F. Bruce. He had the best quote on it. He said, one thing must emphatically be stated. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she'd already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and generally apostolic authority. So the third question we have today. If we have these books and we think they're inspired, but that was 2,000 years ago, how do we know that the content then is the same content we have today? And again, there's a lot of controversy around this. True or false, do you think we have any of the original autographed copies of any of the New Testament? Like, Epistle to the Galatians, signed Paul. Yeah, no, we don't. And there's several reasons. 2,000 years is one reason. But uh, two main reasons. First, first of all, they wrote this on papyrus, which is a plant. You can see a plant. It's like a big reedy plant, and they'd peel the reeds off, wet them, flatten them, do a little basket weaving with them, flatten them again, get the water out. And that's what they wrote on. It's cheap. It's a renewable resource for these people, so it's easy to, to get. But it's not the choice if you want your, word, your words to remain, you know, in existence. By the f- fourth century, then we, they start using animal skins, you know, parchment is what they call it, or vellum. And that lasts a bit longer. And the second reason these, these early writings are, had a tough time of surviving was Roman persecution. From about 64 AD with Nero burning Rome all the way to about 303, which is, this is Emperor Diocletian. In 303, he was one of the last, he, he led the last persecution. It was, it was probably the bloodiest, most deaths. And in Rome, when they persecuted, they were very thorough. Not only did they go after the people, they took the land, they took the buildings, and they had bounties on scripture. If you could produce Christian scripture and have it burned, you'd be rewarded. So you have these headwinds that the, the scriptures are written on, on material that did not last. And then there's actively the largest, you know, empire in the world going after them. There's not a lot that's going to survive. 
So do we have any? Well, we do. We have some. And just to give you an idea, this is probably the earliest piece on the left, P52, Papyrus 52. It's just a little fragment. But it's the Gospel of John. It's written on both sides. And we could use that to compare the fragment to what we have today to understand what it is. On the right, you're looking probably 100 years after they're written. It's almost like a comic book. Large, they used large papyrus, folded them over, and they just copied all of Paul's writings. And so this would travel church to church. And actually, that one there, you can actually go look at. It's at the University of Michigan. And they bring it out every Christmas in a special exhibit. So they can look at these things and examine. In total, we have 5,800 Greek manuscripts, ranging from small, you know, part, little piece to the large parchment. More of them are the longer pieces that we can now collect and decide what is, you know, what was the, the source. Because if people were copying by hand, there's obviously going to be errors as they copy. If we had time, we could pass out paper to everyone here, and we could put the book of Philippians up here, and we could practice. You know, everyone write this, and then collect them all. There probably would not be a, a, you know, two that are the same, because people would make mistakes in different areas. But we could come up with the original, you know, what was on the screen by looking at these, even though they had errors, because we could compare and see what the majority of them had at this written down. And this study of comparing these differences is it's almost like Christian scholar CSI. They have this textual variation, you know, they, they categorize and they study. And there's, you know, there's thousands and thousands of differences, but the vast majority of the differences are spelling, which to me is comforting because I don't spell very well. So, and there's less than 1% of any of the differences actually change the meaning of the passage that they're in. And then none of those that there's differences change any of the script, any of the major doctrines of the, of the church. Like when Peter talked about who is God, who is Jesus, who is the Spirit, we find any differences that we think are valid that would change what the, those, those facts are that, that, we, that Peter talked about. So back to our question, how do we know that our copies of the New Testament are accurate? Well, we have a lot of different copies of them. And not only the 5,800 that we have in Greek, we have tens of thousands of them in Latin, which became the major language after Greek. And then because it's spread, you have the Coptic languages in, the, in Egypt and North Africa, and you have the different languages that went up to the Syriac, Syria region. And we can use those as, as, as comparisons as well. And even if we lost every manuscript we had, the, new, the church leaders in this, those first several centuries, they wrote about the faith and they quoted scripture. And, and, and some poor guy went and cataloged all that <laughs> and compared it with the New Testament. He found every passage in the New Testament is quoted by an early church leader except for 11 verses in Revelation. I don't know. So we have lots of information from which we can make the assessment that what we have in the scriptures today reflect what was originally written back in the first century. So that was a bit of a whirlwind tour. So um, again, each one of those subjects could be the source of a talk or more talk. There's seminary classes about the, you know, these topics. So uh, 
like I said at the start, if there's anything that maybe sparked an interest, or if there's anything that is still a stumbling block for your faith, I have a couple action items that we could do. First, reach out. Reach out to Peter. Reach out to Jason whenever he's available. He seems to be busy <laughs> these days. Even myself. Um, read up. We have a church library. Who, who knows we have a church library? <laughs> yeah, Anda knows. because she's, she's, So back in our church library, we have resources on the subject. If, if anything in here is of interest to you, we have several books. I could even show you. So the guy I quoted earlier, F.F. Bruce, New Testament documents, he's just very thin, goes through the topics that we just talked about in a little more detail. And if you're a little more interested, there's by Norman Geisler, William Nix, From God to Us, How We Got the Bible. A bit more thicker, but he goes into more detail about all the way from inspiration, even to what books of the Bible people thought should be in it, but then they were, the decision was made not to have them in, why they, they weren't recognized as Scripture. And if you really have questions, we have this. <laughs> this gives you a lot more information. And this goes into detail about each book, the journey that each book of inner New Testament took. What were the critics? What were the discussions? Why was it recognized as Scripture? So this is, pretty, this is pretty good. And we have a video series by uh, a professor named Michael Kruger that is not there yet. It will be there shortly, hopefully that he goes to his six talks, and what I talked about today, he, he'll break down in detail from inspiration to why it was decided, to the problems that people have argued. And finally, I think this is the encouraging part um, from Isaiah. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. God has promised that his word will endure. There's been many things that have happened through Roman, you know, persecution, through things last, not lasting. There's many miracles in this journey. I mean, I'd love to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the fact that our earliest manuscripts of some of the Old Testament um, writings were into the, into the 900s to 1200s AD after the fact, but then a, a bored shepherd throws rocks into a cave and hears something crash. And we discover this cache of writings in these jars that are in the, the Qumran southwest part of uh, Israel. It has a perfect environment for this stuff lasting because it's hot and dry and kept in a, in a jar. And there's complaints about the Christian faith that the Christians, you know, the, really put all that Jesus, you know, we say that Jesus casts a shadow back into the Old Testament. You, you know, once you see the New Testament, you can see Jesus in the Old Testament, all the references to him. And they complained that all those references were put in by the Christians. You know, that, they weren't really there. But now in these, what we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they date before the life of Jesus. You know, and, and scholars start, you know, Isaiah 53, oh, he's in here still, you know. <laughs> and stuff like that we discover. that keeps on. And we continue to find these things more and more. We found they just released fragments of the book of Mark you know, a couple, couple years ago that they discovered, they're cataloging, they're looking, they found it in an, in an old Egyptian garbage heap. So God has said he would preserve his word. And then finally in Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what it 
is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I mean, this, this is, you know, one of the goals of the Christian faith. It's we come to the faith and we, have, we believe certain things. We make certain assumptions about what is true, the way life should go, what is important. But then as we, as we become a Christian, God, through the Spirit, starts to change and, and teach us and renew. And God's Word is one of the main avenues where that happens. As we take our thoughts and our assumptions to the Word and we read, the Holy Spirit reveals to us areas we need to rethink about things we believe. And it's a constant, lifelong process that we need to be engaged in. So it's something I encourage. And be encouraged that we have lots of reasons why the, the Bible that we have is accurate. It is the inspired Word of God, and we have an accurate copy. All right, let me close in prayer. Father God, we thank you, first of all, that for preserving your Word, that it remains true, it remains the the source and your message to the people. We thank you for the miracle of inspiration, for preserving your word, for loving us by giving us your word, the desire that you have to change us. Um, may we be changed by it. May we be courageous enough to read and to let your spirit speak. And may we grow in love for you as you, and become like Christ, growing in love, mercy, and grace in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand?